Hello. Good to see all of you. And um, this is kind of an interesting experience for me, being able to um, come to you on Zoom. But I'm just glad to do that. I'm glad to be able to come and uh, share with you God's word. Before I do, I'd like to just say a word of thanks for some of you. Pastor Mark, you've been such a blessing, uh, encouraging me and our church. Uh, even a few years ago when we talked about maybe getting together with this ministry and having people from your church help at our camps, and you just stepped right up. We're willing to do that. Teddy, you've been such an amazing, amazing help. You've been the point guy through this from the get-go, uh, helping out with us in so many ways um, with our camps and getting people involved. And uh, so thank you so much for your partnership with you. Ted, uh, you've been a blessing too, and I, I think I'm trying to name all of you, and I'll probably miss some of you, but uh, Jenna, Austin, Gabe, Eric, uh, Carrie, YK, Danielle, the Roden family, um, and probably there's some other ones, but thank you, and as a church, thank you for praying for us and supporting us, so uh, we hope this partnership will last for many years with you guys. In light of uh, the world we're living in, this crazy time that we're living in, I uh, would like to encourage you and challenge you with um, some principles that we can learn through suffering. Principles that we can learn from suffering. Uh, and I think what, we're, what I'm going to do is flow out of all, all of this out of Romans 8, 28. We're all familiar with Romans 8, 28. It says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And I think the things that it's talking about in verse 28 are bad things, trials, tribulations. It's when God really steps in and uses this for good. It's hard for us sometimes to understand that. We have to trust in that. Now, before I get into these principles, um, it's important for us to realize that we live in a wicked world, wicked and evil world. First John 5, 19 says that we, that we live in, the world is in, is in the power of the evil one. That's Satan. This is his playground. But not only do we live in a wicked and evil world, but we live in a, also a sin-cursed world. A sin-cursed world. We see that here in Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 20 and then verse 22. Verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And then verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers. The pains of childbirth together until now. We live in a sin cursed world. God has cursed this world, this physical universe. No part of creation fulfills God's original purpose now because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve initially lived in a very, very nice environment in a garden. They had fellowship with God. They were communing with him. But because of their disobedience, it changed everything. And God had to judge them and judge this planet. So wouldn't you be so, so surprised to see what's going on in this world in some ways? Because God said this, this is the kind of world we live in. And Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our hearts are wicked and evil. So we see that in a more profound way today, don't we, in what's going on. 
And at times this we can cause us to question God and to wonder, God, what is going on and where are you during this time? Why are you allowing this to happen? I thought you were a loving God. And we can cry out to him and be perplexed sometimes. What is happening here? David at times was perplexed in the Psalms. There would be many times when he would cry out to God, say, God, where are you? Have you abandoned me? Are you near or not? Are you answering my prayers? Help me. I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm in a dark place. And death is approaching and engulfing me. This word perplexity is interesting. It comes from the Greek word opereo. It literally means no way out. It means no way out. The second writer of the first century used this word to describe one who was hounded by creditors and who was at his wit's end on how to ever repay the debt that he owed. Writers state this word describes one who was totally unable to find a way out of a solution. There's no deliverance for this person. Someone who feels there's no hope. They feel like there's no hope. Many great men in the Bible, great godly people, have descended at times into this hopelessness and despair. David, I mean, excuse me, Apostle Paul went through some difficult, difficult times in his ministry. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, and excuse me, verse 23 and following. Verse 23 and following. He says here, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane or more, or more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten, times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was short stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I had spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea. Dangers among false brethren. I have been labored hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's daily pressure on me for my concern for the church. This was Paul's ministry in life. Difficult times for Paul. So, what do we do? Difficult times. What is God doing during these times? But we're going to look at some, our 10 principles, 10 principles that we can learn from. Number one, God is sovereign. That's super important to understand in times like this, especially. God has not flown away or he's turned his back or abandoning all of us right now. God is sovereign. That's a hard word to fathom, his sovereignty, too. I don't think it's easy for us to comprehend that God is this big. He's a God that's all-knowing, everywhere at all times, and all-powerful. Hard to fathom a God like that. Lamentations 3, 37 to 38. Lamentations 3, 37 to 38. It says here, Who is there who speaks... And it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and will go forth? 
Let's look at Isaiah 45, 7. Isaiah 45, 7. The one forming the light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I'm the Lord who does all of these. God is sovereign over good and evil. Ephesians 1.11. Let's get a New Testament verse. Ephesians 1.11. says here. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. All things after the counsel of his will. He works out his plan. I mean, God has a plan according to his will. And then in Job. You remember the story of Job? He lost his family, lost everything. God allowed the enemy, Satan, to work on him and to torture him. And, and yet Job never cursed God, but he sure had a lot of questions of, during this time. And, of course, he got bad counsel, too. Towards the end of the book of Job, in the last few chapters, God gives him a lecture on who he is, on his sovereignty and his attributes. He says, Job, were you there when I created the earth? Were you there when I created man? And he goes on and on and gives him a long, long lecture on this, who he is. Finally, in chapter 42, Job responds to God. Verse 1, Job answers the Lord and says, I know that you can do all things, and the purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've declared which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I do not know. Here now and I will speak. I will ask you and you, you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job gets it now. Job realizes that God is a lot bigger than he thought. Is, is a lot more uh, amazing than he possibly thought. Maybe he had shrunk God down a little bit. God is sovereign over everything. He created everything. He is sovereign over everything. What a great lesson for Job to learn. Sadly, he, he lost his family and he lost everything he possessed. But then at the end of the day, at the end of the book, God blessed him, though, with a new family. He blessed him with a new home. So we say there that God is sovereign. And as difficult as it may be at times to see that, we have to trust what the word says, that he is sovereign, especially in a time that we live right now. Number two, God uses difficulties to save people. This is an opportunity for people to get saved. I don't know for you, but when I go outside in public areas and see people, they are fearful, they, they look scared, they look anxious. So we pray that the Lord would open eyes and draw people to himself during this difficult time. Let's look at James. James chapter 4, verse 8. James 4, me, verse 8. says here, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
you need to pray that God's going to draw people near to him at this time. That there would be a spiritual revival in this country and in the world at this time. So we see God is sovereign over everything, good and the bad. In fact, it's interesting if we look at that, if we were to sum that up in, in simple terms here about God's sovereignty, that he is a good God. He is a good God. He's all-powerful. He's all-powerful. He's a God who uh, allows suffering and evil to exist. He has moral and sufficient reasons for allowing evil to exist. We might not always understand that. And to sum up, we have a good and powerful God who has good reasons for moral and physical suffering to exist. We have a good and powerful God who allows these things for a reason. And we have to trust him for that. All right, number three. God allows suffering to manifest his power, love, grace, and mercy to us. I had uh, the opportunity to do a memorial service a couple of weeks ago to a family at our church. They've been here for many, many years. They have three children. I know the family very well. And their 27-year-old son died from an overdose of drugs. Uh, and their son had been struggling with heroin addiction for since he was 15. And this was a difficult time these last few years for this family, uh, trying to help this young man uh, break this addiction. There would be many times when he would do well, and then they'd go, then he'd go back to the heroin. Then he'd do well, and he'd go back to the heroin. It was, it was like a up and down type of situation for them. But after the moral service, I was walking outside with the dad, and he, he was walking with me, and he looked at me and said, you know, I've had a chance to reflect the last few days on the last few years, difficult years that we've had with our son. And he says, I'm amazed that God got us through it. I am amazed that God gave us the strength, me and my wife, to be able to endure these years with our son because it was hard. When we're suffering, that's when we can really see God's grace and mercy and love in a unique way, in a unique, special way. Let's look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul here. God gives him a thorn in the flesh. Paul had an amazing experience, like whether he was in heaven, experienced going to heaven, or whatever, but God was concerned that he was going to get puffed up because of this experience. He thought he'd get puffed up because of this experience. So, he humbles him, gives him this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to keep him from exalting himself. A lot of people have different reasons, different ideas of what it was. But it's pretty bad because in verse 80 he says, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Three times that it might leave me. It didn't. But God said here, he tells him that I will get you through this. I will help you to deal with this thorn in the flesh. He says here, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul says, now most glad, therefore I will rather boast my weaknesses, and the, so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with my weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a great opportunity for us to experience that right now in our lives. 
Philippians tells us in 4.13 that I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. All things. We have to really embrace these truths in our lives in a, in a way maybe in a way we have before. Number four, God may allow suffering to keep us humble. God may allow suffering to keep us humble. Great opportunity to humble us. Why does God want to humble us? Because God hates pride. God hates pride. Let's go to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs talks much about pride. Talks much about pride. Let's look at Psalm, Proverbs, excuse me, 16.5. Proverbs 16. Five says here, everyone is proud at heart is abomination to the Lord. Surely he will not be unpunished. Wow, powerful terms. Powerful, powerful statement. That he surely will not be unpunished. Let's look at Proverbs a little bit, a couple pages up to Proverbs 18:12. Proverbs 18:12 says, Before destruction of the heart. A man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Humility goes before honor. Let's look at Proverbs 26.12. Go a little further. 26.12. It says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? Therefore, there's more hope for a fool than for him. More hope for, hope for a fool than for him. And then 1 Peter 5, go towards the end of the Bible to 1 Peter 5, 5. He says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Interesting. He's talking about young men being subject to their elders. Elders are the spiritual leaders of the church. Then he says here, uh, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we see here that God is opposed to the proud. What is it? some examples in the Bible we could look at? Well, let's turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And we're going to look at King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30 and following. It says, The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the mighty power and the glory for, of my majesty? Well, here Nebuchadnezzar is pounding his chest. Look at all these great things that I've done, he's saying. And what's amazing, right in the middle of him saying this, God intervenes. Verse 11, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been declared. Sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of times will pass over you, 
until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows whoever he wishes. Saying, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm in control here, not you. I am sovereign over everything here, not you. Well, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. By the end of that period, Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes, though. This is the good news. Towards heaven. And, and he says, my reason has now returned to me. I am blessed the most high and praise and honor whom he lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures for generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But he has according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar gets it now. He understands who's sovereign and in control here. He's praising God here. It's amazing, amazing transformation. Because God broke this man. Broke him hard. So we see God hates pride. God hates pride. And he will do whatever it takes to humble us. Pride is a, is a, is a, is a cancer. It destroys relationships. I can't tell you how many times we cancel married couples and the problem in their marriage is pride. Pride gets in the way of our relationship with the Lord. We're not going to be able to have a right relationship with God if there's pride in our life. We need to pray that God would help us to be humble people. Number five, God will use suffering to discipline also, to discipline us. We might wander off at times. We might roam away from God. There might be some sin in our lives that we're not dealing with, and God will discipline us to wake us up. Hit us on top of the head. Let's look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12, great chapter on discipline. It says here in verse 7, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons, and what son is there whom father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Because we're all imperfect and need discipline if we really want to know if we're really true children of God, is when we get hit on top of the head by God, and he disciplines us as a loving father. He says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, verse 9, and we respected them, shall not much rather be subject to the fathers of spirits and live? Verse 10 says, for the dis this discipline is for a short time, which seems best but he disciplines us for our own good that we may share his holiness. God is perfect. His discipline is perfect and always does good. Has a good for us. Spiritual good, really, for us. Lastly here, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, after it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Praise God that God loves us enough to discipline us. So we've seen so far these points that we're going at, principles. God is sovereign over the good and the evil. He has reasons for this. Number two, God will save people through times such as this that we're living in. We need to pray for that. Number three, God allows suffering to manifest his power, grace, and mercy, and love in a unique way. Fourthly, God allows suffering to keep us humble. Fifth, he allows suffering to discipline us. Number six, 
God allows suffering to test and refine our faith. Our faith is important to him. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. He says here, an interesting statement. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. How can we rejoice through trials? Is that something that we should be jumping up and down and happy when we go through trials? Should we be jumping up and down and being happy right now in this world that we're living in? I don't think that's what he's saying. It's interesting because this is also said in James chapter 1. He says, Consider it all joy, brethren, when you suffer in Calvary trials. I think what he's saying here is that good can come from this. We should be happy. God is working in our lives. And he will get us through the trial. He will give us what we need, the strength and the grace. But let's go on here, though. He says, Greatly joy, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Interesting term, he says, for a little while. He's saying here that compared to eternity, the suffering we have with our trials is just a short time. It's just a short time. And he goes on here in verse 7. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, you know, tested by fire, may be found to be the result of praise and glory, and on at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith is more precious than gold, he says. I want to know where your, faith, where your faith is at, he's saying. It's important to me. And it should be important to you. So the focus of this test of faith isn't the test itself, but the outcome of the test. Focus is on the residue of faith that remains when the test is over. Well, let's look at someone in the Bible that was tested severely. And I think many, many of you might think what I'm thinking. We're going to go to Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22. It's a great story of Abraham. Genesis 22. Let's look at verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, Abraham says, here I am. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. Can you imagine this? God says, take your son, you're going to kill him. I want you to kill your son. Is Abraham going to complain here and say, oh, forget that, God. I'm not going to do that. What do you think I am, a nut? Are you, are you, what are you telling me to do? Verse 3, he gets right up. Abraham, he doesn't even hesitate. He rises early in the morning. He saddles his donkey, took two of his sons with him, and Isaac and his son, split the wood for the burnt offering, and rose and went to the place where God had told him to go. Wow. He doesn't even hesitate. Let's go down to verse 9 here now. Then he came to the place in which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham sits out his hand and has a knife in his hand. He's ready to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham says, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against that lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. See, if you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What an amazing test that he passed. Would we be able to do that? Would we be able to do that if he asked us to do? Well, let's look at someone who failed the test. Let's go to Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 31 and following. 
This is a Peter. Peter's an interesting character. Verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. This is addressed to Peter. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you once have turned again, strengthen to strengthen your brothers. And then Peter responds by saying, Lord, with you I am ready to go to both prison and to death. There's Peter. But Jesus says to him, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. The good news is that Peter became a very strong believer later on in his life and became, had a tremendous ministry for the Lord. And when he was crucified, which he was, he purposely got crucified upside down, different than what Christ was crucified. He didn't feel he was worthy to be crucified in the same time way that Christ was. Amazing, amazing testimony. So not only does God humble us, and he disciplines us, but he wants to see where our faith is. He wants to see where our faith is. Number seven, God allows suffering so that we can identify with Christ, with his sufferings, with his sufferings. And we see this here in a few scriptures. We're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. He says here, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes to you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. That's a, it's not a strange thing when you go through suffering. You should be, should be surprised. Persecution is not something that happens when accidentally. Suffering doesn't happen because it's an accident that's happened. There's a reason for it. God uses it for testing, purging, and cleansing at times. Let's look at 1 Peter 2. Go back a couple pages to 1 Peter 2. 21 here. 1 Peter 2, 21. He says, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Give an example for you. This is a calling. We're, we're, we're suffering. To suffer is a calling from God. We're called to suffer. We're called to be saved, and we're also called to suffer. It's amazing, but that's a fact. And then let's go to... Philippians 3, as the Apostle Paul is talking here. Philippians 3. It's always good to hear what Paul has to say. Philippians 3. Verse 10. It says here, That I may know in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. Now we all would love to be in fellowship with Christ. Because of resurrection. Because we're, we're all going to be resurrected someday. But he says to, be, to have the fellowship of his sufferings. That's an amazing statement. 
This is a partnership, he's saying, a deep communion of suffering that every believer shares with Christ. That's an amazing partnership that he's asking us to have with him. Partnership in suffering. Now, all of this is to say in the midst of, worse, of terrible afflictions, God is at work to use the suffering to draw us closer to him, as he said. This doesn't make the grief and pain any less or the evil any less. But it should encourage us to realize that suffering isn't a sign that God has abandoned us. But rather, he's using the pain and suffering to stimulate our growth in Christ. Stimulate our growth in Christ. So we've seen here, God is sovereign. Secondly, God saves people through suffering. That's what we want. We pray for salvation of people. Three, God uses suffering to manifest his power and grace and mercy in a unique way. Fourth, God allows suffering to keep us humble, humbleness. Fifth, God uses suffering to discipline us. Sixth, God allows suffering to test and refine our faith. Our faith is important to him. Seventh, God allows suffering for us to learn to identify with Christ and his sufferings. And we're to partner with him in that. Eight, number eight, God allows suffering for us to be a witness to this world, this non-believing world. We have an opportunity to be a great witness for him in this world. Let's turn to 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. It says here, But sanctify Christ as Lord of your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks for you, to give that account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. This is an opportunity for us to be open to share the gospel and share the hope of Christ to people. Should be ready for that. Let's look at Philippians 2.15. Philippians 2.15. says here in Philippians 2.15. So that you prove yourself to be blameless, innocent children and above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Wow. We live in a crooked and perverse world, lost world. What a great opportunity for us to be a testimony in this lost world. Ephesians 5, 8 says that we are to walk as children of light. We're to walk as children of light. We're to be light in this dark world. And we surely live in a dark world. To sum up how our attitude should be in this lost world, 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9 kind of tells us an attitude that we need to have in this world that we live in. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. He says you need to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. When people mock us, make fun of us, we don't return evil for evil. Because the Lord says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? We can leave that in his hands. What a great opportunity we have to minister to this lost world. And then Matthew, 
chapter five, the Beatitudes, which I taught to you guys, I don't know if it was one summer ago, two summers ago, Matthew five. It says here, we're talking, we talked about the fact that we, characteristics that we need to have as Christians being poor in spirit, mourning, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful people, pure in heart, peacemakers, um, that we're going to be persecuted for our faith. Then he goes in verse 13, 14, and he says, we need to be salt and light in this dark world. Salt's an interesting term. It is both a preservative and a flavor enhancer, but no doubt it's, here it's being used as a preservative. And we're to be a preservative in this culture. And then he says, we need to be light in this dark world. In fact, verse 16 here, it says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What an opportunity now in this dark world for us to be lights. We really need to make it a commitment in our lives now to be a witness for Christ more than ever in this dark world. And we will get persecuted for it. I guarantee you we will now when you speak up about Christ. Number nine. We're almost through this. Number nine. We're also to be to comfort one another. Suffering should give us an opportunity now to comfort one another. When I say one another, our Christians, sisters and brothers in Christ, to comfort each other here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Talking about the body of Christ, the different gifts that we all have. Verse 18 says, but now God has placed the members of each one of them. This is 1 Corinthians 12. But now God has placed the members of each one of them in the body just as he has desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members in one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which deem less honorable on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed by giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks. Those people are hurting in our church, especially want to come around. So there may be no division of the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another, caring for one another. That's verse 26. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. One member's honors, all the members rejoice with it. Romans says that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. And then Galatians 6.2. Galatians 6.2. says here, Bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law. We need to bear each other's burdens. Burns are extra heavy loads, which are rep represent difficulties or problems people are having. Bear connotes carrying something with endurance, carrying their burden, helping to carry their, carry their burdens for them. And there's so many one another's in Scripture. There's over 30 one another's in the Bible. Caring for one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another, coming alongside one another. So, this is a great opportunity right now in this world that we live in, to really be comforting and praying for one another. We at our church here, 
about four months ago, decided to set up a ministry of feeding our people in our church because many of our people are out of work. And we, we've been feeding them every week. It's been a great ministry we've had, to giving food to families that are struggling financially. We've also been, amazingly, we have five, 6,000 members of this church. We made a commitment to call every single member on the phone and encourage them. We've been doing that. It's going to take a while to get through those many people, but we're, we're chipping away every week. We're calling a certain amount of people every week. Letting them know. I was checking to see how they're doing. You know, my own ministry, I've been trying to keep in touch with the uh, families that have dis disabled children. My wife and I and some of those people on staff have gone out to visit the homes, even though we can't see them. Uh, when I say homes, the homes of our disabled people, we can't see them uh, up close. We're seeing them from a distance most of the time. They won't even let them out of the house, so we go out in the front yard and just wave to them from a distance. But we're trying to reach out, and we're trying to encourage the caregivers, too, that have to care for them. Because right now, they're pretty much locked down at home, these people. And it's, it's a real challenge for the caregivers. So we've been trying to reach out as much as we can. Great opportunity right now to, to minister to one another. Okay. So we see here that God is sovereign. God also allows suffering to manifest his power and grace. God saves people through difficult times. He allows suffering to keep us humble. He allows suffering to discipline us. He allows, allows suffering to, to test and, and refine our faith. He allows suffering for us to identify with Christ and his sufferings. He allows suffering for us to be a witness to the world. He allows suffering that we can minister to one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Number 10, God allows suffering so that we can long for heaven. We look forward and long for heaven. This is not our home. Let's look at Romans 8. Romans 8, 18. Paul talking here. For I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to glory that's to be revealed to us. Paul is saying, compared to what we're going through now and compared to eternity, we can't even compare the two. We can't even compare the two. Philippians 3, Paul's talking here in Philippians 3. Twenty to twenty-one, he says, "For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we all, all eagerly await for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conforming with the body of His glory." Our true home is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven, and we look forward to that day. John Anderson Tata, if you were to get together and talk with her, first thing she wants to talk about is heaven. That's what gets her through every day is taught heaven. Here's a woman that not only broke her neck when she was 17 and has been a quad, quadriplegic for all of her life. In fact, she's one of the oldest living quadriplegics. She's also had cancer. She suffers with pain every single day. And yet, if you're around her, she loves to sing hymns, she's joyful, and she loves to talk about heaven. Apostle Paul in his ministry, desired to be in heaven. Philippians 1, 22 to 24. Philippians 1, 22 to 24. 
But I'm to live in the flesh, this will give me fruitful labor for me. I don't know which to choose. I'm hard pressed in both directions, having desire to part and be with the Lord, for that is much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Struggle with Paul, wanting to be with the Lord, knowing though that God has called him to a ministry that he needs to fulfill. Colossians 3, you don't need to turn there. It says, says set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Matthew 6, 19 says, lay your treasures in heaven, not on the earth. In closing, I'd like to share a story about an amazing woman by the name of Fanny Crosby. Sorry, I've got a drop piece of paper here. I didn't disappear on you. Fanny Crosby, at six weeks, developed an illness that caused her to be blind. But she committed her life to her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, at an early age. She ended up writing over 6,000 gospel hymns, many of them that we sing in our churches. Well, one time a preacher came by and said, you know what, I, I, I never see you bitter. I never see you really upset or down and out, or out. I mean, I never see you depressed. I always see you joyful. But he says, I think it's a great pity that your master did not give you sight. And he showered you so many other gifts. Well, she replied to him, did you know that at birth I'd been able to make one petition? It would have been that I'd been born blind. Well, this man scratched his head and said, what? Why would you want to be born blind? Well, she responded to him, she says, because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever glad my sight, that will be that of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, one time she had a chance to speak at a D.L. Moody conference, the great D.L. Moody. Well, she first hesitated, but then she rose and said, well, there's a hymn I have written. I call it my soul's poem. Sometimes when I'm troubled, I repeat it to myself, or it brings comfort to my heart. She then recited while many were weeping, and it goes like this. Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more shall sing, but oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of my king. I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. At the age of 95, Fanny Crosby passed into glory, and the first face that did gladden her heart was that of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow, this lady, what an amazing face she had. She lived for eternity. She got it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness in your word that we can go to in these crazy and difficult times that we live in. Lord, we have to realize that you are sovereign. You haven't made a mistake here, what's going on in our world. You've allowed this to happen, and you use it for good in our lives and in others' lives. You do a work in our lives from this. And help us to trust you, even though things look so bleak and so sad and so difficult. Help us to long for heaven at this time of our lives, Lord, because you could come any day. You could come today, the way things now are in our world. You could come back today. Help us to live our lives that way, that you may come back today. Are we ready to go and be with you? Help us to live for eternity now, Lord. Help us to be open to sharing your gospel. Help us to be a light in this dark world. May we be focused on that, if nothing else. Use this, Lord, in these difficult times that we're living in.
We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, it's been a joy to be able to come before you. And uh, thank you so much for listening to me. I hope I made some sense here. And God bless all of you. Hope to see you all soon.